Whether you are looking for a space to host an intimate gathering or a major celebration, the Westmoreland Museum of American Art offers an artful venue for creating a truly amazing and unforgettable event experience. Don't miss the Bridal and Event Showcase at the museum this Sunday, May 21st from 6 to 9 p.m. Meet a variety of vendors, including florists, caterers, bakeries, jewelers, entertainers, and more. To register for this free event, visit thewestmoreland.org. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes Store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com store. If you want more than one episode, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com membership. listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 20 is, is pragmatism a legitimate response to philosophical problems or just a cop-out? With discussion of two articles by Charles Sanders' Purse, The Fixation of Belief and How to Make Our Ideas Clear, plus William James' book, Pragmatism. For a link to those texts, discussion, other information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, bloviating from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, inveighing from Austin, Texas. And this is Wessall One. Uh, Mark, if you're bloviating, I'll be obviating uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. And? Uh, and this is Dylan Casey, uh, pragmatating from Annapolis, Maryland. <laughs> That could be a word that Peirce used. He he likes <laughs> really weird Prag- pragmatizationing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> By the way, guys, this is the one year anniversary of our first episode, which was uh, published on May twelfth, two thousand and nine. Published, really? Congratulations, you guys! Oh, Ooh. thanks, thanks. And depending on how you count, it's our twentieth episode. Yes, and that's why I brought this cake for you all. Here it Thank is. Thank you. Email me a slice. <laughs> The cake is a lie. (laughs) Here are some ground rules that we try to follow in our discussions. I was thinking for this number 20, we could give a little more explanation of these than usual so as to stretch them to coincide with our actual current practices. But listeners, for more info on what we're doing here, if you you don't know, look on our blog or iTunes for our episode zero, where we explain this in more length. This is our time for reflection. We can see if we want to just throw some of these out, but I think I've rationalized them all right. Number one, we do not assume that our audience knows anything about any of this. Uh, wherever possible, we need to explain what we're talking about without using jargon. However, you should look at this in context. While we can, through the course of this podcast, uh, try to give lengthy and adequate explanations for the things we're concerned with, we can't make all of these explanations in every episode. So, while we hope the episodes can be listened to in isolation, if you only like pragmatism, say, or if you only like Dylan, if you want everything to be as clear as it can be, you might want to listen to the other episodes that we refer to. Reasonable? We've had complaints. People, you really do assume that we need to know things. Does that address them adequately? It's hard. It's hard not to make reference to previous episodes. It's hard not to make reference to... The fact that you went to graduate school? Yeah. It's not so much the making references to other things that's most important. It's whether or not you're using them either in a way that's essential to forwarding your your argument or to understanding exactly what it is you're saying. So if you make an offhanded reference for someone who might benefit from that reference and it's not essential to understanding what you're saying, I think that's fine. Or other quasi-name-dropping things like, hey, you might want to read these, you know, in this case, 
contemporary pragmatists if you want to learn more, stuff like that. So that's my take on it. Well, what, one of the neat things about what you guys have been doing is that there's a way in which you guys have, all three of you have been having a conversation for a year now. And I think it'd be interesting for you guys to do a podcast at some point, sort of trying to sum up sort of the trajectory of what you guys have gotten out of it. It's, it's sort of been organic. I can, just from the conversation earlier, you guys decide along the way, you don't have some grand plan about the things you're going through, but they clearly relate to one another just in sort of the way you're evolving the podcast itself. Yeah. You know, Mark, what we might say is you might just soften the language. You might say, instead of we don't assume, you could just say, we try not <laughs> to, to assume that you know anything about this or have read the text. And they say, but your appreciation and understanding of what we're doing will be greatly enhanced if, in fact, you do. So it's a matter of you can have a clearly stated rule that you're then lax about enforcing, or you can have a laxly stated rule that you're very strict about enforcing <laughs> in its laxness. I want you to for sure try. <laughs> so the second rule was no gratuitous name dropping. We're interested in ideas, not with fetishizing a bunch of dead philosophers. If we have a point to make, we will just make it and not say, for instance, you would understand me if only you had read Kant's deathbed work. I hope Wes will think well of me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what this rule means is that, again, if we're going to bring something up, we should explain it. And if there's not time to fully explain it, we may refer to an earlier, or in some cases, a future episode. Or I should just probably edit out the reference. But really, name-dropping in itself is a way of just giving an ongoing education about these people, like Wes was saying, I guess is not bad, as long as it's not like confusing or resting your actual argument on something that is not being said right now, because that just leads to vagueness. Yeah, it's like, uh, no, Mark, you're wrong, you know, according to... So-and-so, you know, this is what Pierce really, Pierce really means. Yes. Number three, we shall be rigorous and exact in all that we say, except in the case where not doing so seems like it would be more entertaining. This is just irony, of course. We'll do our best, but we're often thinking through things while we're talking about them. This is not a prepared course being taught by three or four people. Some of the areas we feel like discussing, we specifically bring up because we don't understand them and are trying to get clear about them. This may or may not be entertaining to listen to, but hopefully our editing process makes it less painful than it would be were you on the call with us live. <laughs> Does that sum that up? Yes. All right. I think one of the bad things about academia and the bad things of, of at least the way I was as a student, that when you read something new, the way you feel like you understand it is just to relate it to everything else that's on your mind recently. I don't care what Peirce really has to say. I just want to see how he relates to Kant and Nietzsche. Yeah, okay, that's a strategy for understanding it better, but you can do that too much, right? Sure. I don't like the obligation either. You don't like to have to compare them? No, I don't like the idea that like whatever we're talking about, like I have to relate it to the previous episode per se, if that's not what moves me. If it fits, you know, great. And we tried to do a couple of series where we have like two or three episodes or three or four episodes in a row that are really on a related theme so we can refer to them. But I just don't want the obligation of doing that. Yes. Well, with this one, it was interesting. So we, we had only pictured that we would do our three epistemology episodes in a row on empiricism, a rationalism, and then Kant, who is the beautiful synthesis, and what is Hegel's word? Sublation. Is that it? It sublates both of them. But now we see uh, the, the pragmatists, actually, this is also an attempt to sublate. I, that's probably not the right word. <laughs> the, the two, rationalism and empiricism, but in a different way, in a way that sees Kant still as too much of a rationalist and is trying to overcome the conflict between them, but more on the empiricist side. Does that seem an accurate characterization? Mm, yeah, maybe, yeah. 
Although they're very critical of empiricism as well, right? And the idea of given sense data and things like that. So. Right. It's very Kantian in some ways, despite the criticisms of Kant. And then it, in a way, it's like walking the tightrope between Kantianism and Hegelianism. So, I don't know. Ooh. We can talk about that. We'll give cash value to that analogy later <laughs> in the episode. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and then as I was reading more James... I have this big book, The Writings of William James, and it not only has his section on pragmatism, but his uh, essays in radical empiricism, which is something he mentions at the beginning of the pragmatism book and says, that's not the same thing as this. You don't have to worry about that right now. But as I was looking a little into that, I was like, wow, this is uh, kind of what the phenomenologists were doing. This is uh, maybe Hegel's insight over Kant about getting rid of the, mm -hmm. the thing in itself. You know, some of that is, is you can see in pragmatism, like Wes was just referring to, but... You, know, you just gave it cash value. I did. <laughs> a little bit. I gave a, a, a 23 cent cash value. It was a coupon. An investment. It'll grow. <laughs> but we should uh, start with Peirce, because Peirce is the first of them. He's the guy that invented pragmatism, or at least was credited by William James with inventing pragmatism. Right? Does yep. anybody have yes. the... Uh, I have his Wikipedia page open, but if anybody else wants to say a little bit about him, go ahead. Go ahead. So this is all really early 20th century, late 19th century, right? In particular, the articles that we read by Peirce, they were 1880s? 1877. Yeah, published in Popular Science Monthly. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. Yep. Yes, and he was an, a practicing scientist. He was a surveyor, an astronomer, and actually was only an academic for just a few years. Tell us why. Let's see. So he, after he... The gypsy. <laughs> after... You tell the story then. No, you know, go ahead. That's all I remember is the gypsy. After he wrote these articles, he got this job at John Hopkins University. Johns Hopkins, yeah. Yes. And he had gone to Harvard and like that's where he met William James. And so you know, people knew where he was, but he, he didn't get a job. In fact he, he just seemed to have a nasty personality and he had some disease that made his face in pain all the time, <laughs> they mentioned. And just kind of an antisocial guy, not good with money at all. But then he, he finally got a, a non-tenure track position as a lecturer in logic at John Hopkins University in 1879, after he wrote these two articles. And uh, he had it for five years. And he was fired because his first wife left him, and then he hooked up with somebody else while still technically married to his first wife and lived with her for a while. And this was discovered. And so he was... Deemed. And she was and she was a gypsy, which I don't really know if that was part of the scandal or racist. Yeah, yeah. So he, that he lived and traveled with a woman to whom he was not married, and this scandal led to his dismissal. And the word of this spread around, and there's at least some speculation that's why he could not get a job at many of the other places that he applied. He never got another academic job. So and then he was in poverty for a number of years, and so twenty years later. After these articles come out, William James gives these pragmatism lectures, and in, in those and in some other places, he credits Peirce with coming up with this whole thing, and that gets Peirce sort of back in the line. He still doesn't get another job. He's still living in basically in poverty in some rural part of Pennsylvania. It says he, like, for 20 years, he couldn't pay his heating bill in the winter. 20 years? <laughs> yes. But several people, including William James, would take up collections for him and, like, pay off his debts. So much so that uh, Pierce reciprocated by designating James' eldest son, because he didn't have any sons of himself, Peirce, as his heir. It says, it has also been believed that this is why Peirce used Santiago, St. James in Spanish, as a middle name. So hmm. whatever, there's some weird... <laughs> or someone just threw that in there on Wikipedia. What do you think the chances are if somebody went in and intentionally posted false information on the Wikipedia page for Charles Sanders Pierce that 
purse, sorry, that anybody would go in to try to correct it. Oh, come now. Academics who are too lazy to actually do publishable things, they live off this stuff. If you say so. I have no support for that. I have considered very seriously, like randomly posting just completely ridiculous stuff on Wikipedia in obscure places just to see if anybody would respond, if anybody would care. There is apparently a, a plentiful army of people that would be there to counter you. I've heard it's generally a matter of seconds before those things get corrected. Really? Yeah, it's amazing. So if I went in there and just did a search on like spaghetti a la carbonara and, you know, just changed like a sentence, like it's typically used Canadian back bacon instead of, <laughs> do you think somebody would actually? That level of subtlety. Now that's, that's a good question. I don't know. Although I think the idea of doing vandalism in a subtle way is sort of self-defeating. <laughs> Mark, you had mentioned how James had tried to help out purse and i think he sort of championed him all his life and tried to get him positions and couldn't do that and they had met in um all of us started in something called the metaphysical club which they were in with supreme court justice oliver wendell holmes james said his pragmatism lectures came out of that and that was in 1872 in cambridge anyway i thought that that's pretty connection to oliver wendell holmes was really interesting so that is but their friendship went way back uh, seth i was just testing your claim about wikipedia there so, a long time ago, the entry under tripe, you know, the edible offal from the stomachs of various farm animals in Wikipedia, I had put at the bottom of it a link to my book that's online called Tripe. <laughs> and that was there for, you know, it's a real link, but it mentioned me. It was, and I didn't want to make a separate page for my own book, whatever. I was too, I don't know how to do that anyway. But uh, that stayed there for months and months. But now I see it is not there. And in fact, it says, for other uses, see tripe disambiguation. When I click that, I am not one of the options. So somebody has expunged my tripeness from the Wikipedia tripe entry. I just assume everybody who goes to look for recipes having to do with tripe would want to read my book. I think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> yeah. You could, in fact, find out who did it. Who removed it? Uh-huh. Ah. Uh, I will not care that much. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> right, and to stalk this person. This is my internet enemy. <laughs> So, should we jump into the actual articles themselves? These are continuous. It's really the fixation of belief, November 1877, how to make our ideas clear, January 1878. And really, they could have been listed as one article, I think, because it's just one continuous story. So what's going on here? What, what would you guys think of this? Or, Well, he has kind of a strange comment early on in the fixation of belief that he sort of suggests that the history of scientific achievement is a document of the defective state of sort of reasoning. And he's kind of championing a kind of logical method and suggesting that science up until the time that this logical method has become clear has been basically trial and error that people use to overcome their lack of understanding or the false ideas they've inherited from previous generations or prejudices. And that if only people had this modern logic that he knows and had applied it appropriately, they would have arrived at the proper conclusions, which they got to sort of via trial and error or stumbling around much more quickly. And I think he throws that out to kind of give credence to some sort of rigorous way of thinking that he's claiming, I guess, to bring to bear in this article and in his philosophy. So he says, we generally know when we believe something versus when we doubt it. That's a difference between doubt and belief. And he's going to bring this to bear on this, the subject of truth. But essentially what he says is when you doubt something, it prevents you from moving to action 
And when you believe something, it has a practical difference in that it typically shapes action. So there is a fundamental difference between doubt and belief. Additionally, doubt is a state that makes you uneasy and that it is something from which you struggle to free yourself. And you want to get basically from doubt into belief. And ultimately, belief is something that makes you ready to act. So in essence, what he says is that inquiry, which you can think of as philosophical inquiry, but also you know, science, all of our attempts to know things are essentially a motivation for us to move from doubt into belief. Right. A state, a state of equilibrium. Yes. Where you would not be uneasy and unsettled and so forth. And it sounds strange because we would typically say, or at least nowadays, we would say we'd want to move from a state of doubt or uncertainty into a state of knowledge. But what he's saying is that really what we're trying to do is settle our beliefs, which is to say, settle our opinions. And he says, you can say that we seek true opinion and not just opinion, but in reality, just having a firm opinion is generally enough for people to move forward. So being uncertain or being in doubt, you are motivated to have a firm fixed belief or a firm opinion, and you inquire and seek out and do whatever it is you have to do to move from this state of doubt into this state of fixed opinion. And once you get there, that's good enough for you if it helps you move on with your life or get things done or set up experiments or do whatever it is you need to do. And you don't really need to distinguish between true opinion and opinion as long as your opinion is fixed and you're happy with it. Well, I mean, doesn't he want to go further than that and say that's all anybody ever does and that's all Kant ever did and that's all Aristotle ever did when they say they know anything is that they just are fixed in their belief? Yes, I think he does go that far. But then he distinguishes it by these sort of three different credos for how you treat your beliefs, three different logical methods for fixing your belief. So one, one is just stick to what you have, despite any evidence to the contrary. Tenacity. Yes. Okay. That's the progression. But he doesn't want to make it like just, these were the ignorant, stupid people, and now we're going to a more enlightened age. There are actually good things about the earlier stages he feels the need to mention. So that was one, the method of tenacity. What was the next one? Authority. Authority would be received opinion. So that's where you have a government or a church or something that says this is the way it is, and you just accept that. And So tenacity is hard to maintain because there are other people. And if other people are constantly telling you things that are different than what you believe, that might disturb you, if, unless you're like just totally antisocial. But we are naturally social people, so maybe we should just have a society in which the government makes everybody believe the same thing. And most people would be very happy to, you know, we like to have our beliefs fixed, and we like to have the people around us not challenging them, so authority works that way. And it's only sort of the downside of it that, oh, well, if somebody does sort of stray, then authority has to step on them and put them back in line. Mm-hmm. The third one was uh, a priori, right? Which is what he thinks most of the philosophers before him, before the people who understood science were doing, which is, oh, well, I don't want to just follow what authority says. I want to try to be right, but I don't really have any standards for deciding what's right. So I'll just sort of go with my inclination. Is that? Yeah, I didn't see that metaphysics based on reason. He says it's an alternative to authority, but it ultimately acts in exactly the same way. Yeah, Descartes, for instance, was challenging the dominance of the Aristotelian view of the time, which actually, by the way, has some commonalities with pragmatism. Doesn't he mention that that bit about Descartes? When Descartes said about the reconstruction of philosophy, his first step was to theoretically permit skepticism and discard the practice of the schoolmen of looking to authority as the ultimate source of truth. Yes. Okay. I understand what you're saying, Wes. 
insofar as scholasticism represents sort of both bad versions of metaphysics based on reason and authority, Descartes was reacting to them and was trying to do something different, although he ended up doing sort of more or less the same thing. And Pierce and James will be just as critical of, for instance, people like Locke. And it's not the absence of science. All of this stuff actually occurred with the beginning of the scientific revolution. The uh, resurgence of rationalism after the dominance of Aristotle's quasi-empirical position for hundreds of years was because of the scientific revolution, specifically the discovery of looking into the way vision works. That's the whole origin of the idea of the thing in itself. It's a discovery that you could treat looking at objects as a matter of spatio-temporal waves bouncing off objects and then into your eye, and then you get the whole secondary-primary quality thing that we've mentioned before. So ironically, rationalism came about as part of the scientific revolution, and as well as the kind of empiricism that they're going to reject. So I think their objections will apply as much to, say, someone like Locke as to someone like Descartes. He says, the a priori method, this thing that Descartes and... Kant and other is distinguished for its comfortable conclusions. It is the nature of the process to adopt whatever belief we are inclined to. And there are certain flatteries to the vanity of man, which we all believe by nature, until we are awakened from our pleasing dream by rough facts. But that's Peirce's cynical. And he, he actually studied Kant and sort of used his Kant as his jumping off point. So, you know, he might have nicer things to say about the specifics of Kant's theory. But overall, he thinks that these rationalists... I think what he's describing here, you know, they claim to have some method and they're thinking things through and they're trying to, you know, come up with clear and distinct ideas, as he talks about in his second essay. But really what they come down supporting is things that are comfortable for them to support. Yeah, and I don't think he thinks of Kant as a rationalist, by the way. All right. He doesn't name Kant here. You know, we just read in the prolegomena, Kant explicitly rejects the idea of clearness and distinctness, and he advocates a coherence theory of truth. Sure. Sure. I mean, the key is that, according to Peirce, what we're trying to do when we inquire about something is to settle our opinion. And the problem that the base is that metaphysicians have not succeeded in settling our opinion, that these systems are very beautiful and the, the arguments are, are great and there are points that make sense. But there hasn't been anyone where everybody's gone, well, it's over. It's done. Kant was right. So no more need to discuss it. And that as long as we have this doubt and this unsettled opinion... We're going to have to continue to strive and continue to do inquiry. And what he's basically saying is more metaphysics probably isn't going to get us there. We have to do something different. And appeal to authority isn't going to work. And hanging on to received ideas isn't going to work. We have to get back to the external permanency to satisfy our doubt, a.k.a. reality, and apply a kind of scientific method to it. Right. And he's vague at this point that he's just saying people should follow some form of scientific logic actually caring about truth as it is attached to concrete facts and logic is what carries you from one adequate or true belief in this sense to another. Right. And we should mention here that what he's talking about is not deductive formal logic like we think of. Although who knows if the listeners actually think of any of this. I think we are poisoned by the fact that in philosophy grad school, we had to take all these logic classes. And so, and, and because we saw, we, we read about Kant and, Hegel both have used the word logic for something else, something that is not this thing that is what is called logic now. And so we should not be surprised that Peirce does the same. So do you guys remember at the end of this article, he goes through basically why people would choose tenacity or authority or metaphysics over the scientific method, right? And he says, you know, if you think about it, 
force of habit brings people, it makes it difficult for them to change their ways. And he says, there's a, it says there, people sometimes shrink from doing this, having an idea that beliefs are wholesome, which they cannot help feeling rest on nothing. But let such persons suppose as analogous, though different, case from their own. Let them ask themselves what they would say to a reformed Muslim who should hesitate to give up his old notions in regard to the relation of the sexes, or to a reformed Catholic who should still shrink from reading a Bible. Would they not say that those persons ought to consider the matter fully and clearly understand the new doctrine and embrace it in its entirety? So I was kind of like, well, that's odd. What does that word mean? A Muslim, I guess, is an archaic way of saying Muslim. I and guess I guessed that, but I had no That's reason. That's what I was someone who liked uh, muscles. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I looked it up and I was kind of, I thought it was interesting that even back then he was basically making a comment about equality of the sexes and referring to Muslims, which I don't know, thought had a kind of interesting resonance for the modern world. Just goes to show you kind of how aware and well-read he was, as even though he was apparently crazy and hung out with gypsies. And Muslims. Now, Dylan, as our former professional scientist on the call, does any of this like resonate or conflict with what you were taught in that world? I mean, when I read Pearson, Person, uh, James. Let's just make it a rule. We all know it's spelled Pierce. It's pronounced Purse. We can say either one. Go Fair ahead. enough. <laughs> okay. To, as far as I'm concerned, they get it completely right all the way. I mean, in terms of the way in which especially an experimentalist scientist works, and the way they understand both their job now and how it's going to evolve in the future, it relies on everything that, that he says. I mean, the thing that Peirce gives you that someone like Bacon and Descartes, you know, they have an emphasis on taking over nature and controlling the world, which is certainly part of the notion of science, that you are able to do things with science. But the thing that you miss out of, in some ways, Descartes and certainly out of Kant, a lot of the metaphysics, is the whole idea that you've come to a conclusion. And science, as an enterprise, clings tenaciously to the idea that you haven't come to a conclusion, that you're always going to be refining it. You know, you may be a reductionist, you can say you're just going to get smaller and smaller, or you may say, well, there's something that is not reductionist. But the whole deal is that there's more to know and more to incorporate, and that at any point, Everything is up for grabs. It may take a lot to knock something off, but mm -hmm. every idea, everything in science for a scientist is up for grabs. And in fact, that is the holy grail of being a scientist, is knocking one of those things down. I mean, everyone would love to be in Einstein's shoes, not because they want to be as smart as Einstein's, but because they want to be in a position where there's something that's that cool that you can say, well, look, Newton was wrong. And he's wrong because of these things. I can say it in a paragraph. Right? And he was wrong in this way. Now, the funny thing about that is, is that whatever you say is going to have to still jive with everything before it. And both Peirce and James are pretty clear about this, that there's a way in which it just becomes harder and harder, that refinement. And there's a way in which you also have to maintain the truth of what was before. So it's not exactly right to say that Newton was wrong. 
when you come mm -hmm. up with Einstein. And in fact, I would say any more than you'd say, it's not exactly right to say that Ptolemy was wrong. Right. And the fact is, is that you use Ptolemy's way of looking at the world depending on what you want to do with it. And you use Newton's way of looking at the world depending on what you want to do with it. And you, you know, if you're doing a particle physics experiment, you need to take other things into account. Yeah, apparently Ptolemy was used to get to the moon. Is that right? Or is that... I don't know about that. I mean, about epicycles and stuff like that. But certainly looking at the stars as if the Earth is the center of the universe right. and going out sailing on the ocean, it's going to make do you a lot more good and be a lot more useful and easier to understand if you look up at the stars and say, oh, look, they're orbiting around over my head, rather than trying to do the calculation by saying, well... Here's the sun and this part of the galaxy and the earth is moving around it and my it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so to me, the thing that you get out of this is, is that part of science, especially experimental science, that is refining and changing and, and opens forward and looks to making something new and not being pissed off about something that was behind you and seeing what was useful in that. That to me is just the way it works. So I wonder if there isn't more of what Dylan's talking about in James than there is in this early part of Purse, but I completely agree with, with what he's saying. I think these guys talk about how scientists work, but I think also there's a lot of that application to, to the way we function just in our daily lives as well. For me, the interesting thing is the shift from the focus from sort of a correspondence theory of truth or the need to identify what the facts are and what's true to saying that really what we're trying to do is get fixed belief or opinion and ultimately make it cohere with uh, all the rest of our opinions. And just thinking about Peirce, this notion of making our ideas clear is part of what's at stake for him there. I mean, when I read that piece, to me, it seemed to be direct response to Descartes and his notion of that those things that we can know are true for certain are those that are clear and distinct to us. Descartes has this paper that he wrote before the geometry that is uh, rules for the right regulation mm -hmm. of the mind. And part of his infatuation with mathematics and the mathematization of thinking about the world has to do with this idea that if it's clear and distinct to our minds, it will be true, sort of by necessity. And Peirce wants to say, well, that's just hogwash. But there is a notion of clarity and a notion of certainty that has to do with consistency and mm -hmm. a kind of enumeration holding together testing experimental confirmation and yeah that's always held by looking out at the world and you always look out and say well does that kind of make sense and to me that's the way in which it's a deep criticism of metaphysics that you either say well look you can't do metaphysics without looking at the world and ultimately if that's true that means that whatever metaphysics you have is going to have to change the way experimental science changes that is by what you learn by looking at the world and the way you refine it. And that seems to me to be completely at odds with the way someone like Kant would understand metaphysics. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. I know it stops just when things were getting really good, so please go download the full episode. You can purchase it in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. Where you can become a Partially Examined Life citizen and get expanded access to our hefty back catalog, a heap of bonus content, and earn the right to participate in not-school online discussion groups with other listeners. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership for details.